Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 28. It's hard to believe we're coming to the last chapter of the book of Acts. So we're in uh, chapter 28. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 and the ministry on the island of Malta. Uh, Malta is uh, the island where they shipwrecked after being uh, two weeks in the midst of this stormy, violent uh, winds that just created all kinds of suffering and loss. And they eventually uh, shipwrecked, but they all made it by the promise of God safely to shore. So we pick it up in uh, Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 1. So please uh, listen in faith and reverence to the reading of God's holy word. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. For though he had been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But when they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, The rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And we were setting sail. They supplied us with all we needed. And verse 11 says they were there on the island for basically three months. So may God bless the reading of his word. Well, so we're on the island of uh, Malta. And uh, my clicker isn't working. <laughs> so Malta is an, was uh, basically inhabited by the Phoenicians who began to uh, prosper from sea trade. An island, uh, Malta as an island had great harbors. So it was a great place to engage in trade and all of that. So Paul now is on the island of Malta. It's about 18 miles in length, about 8 miles wide. And again, the people on the island were called uh, in verse 2 to be natives. 
And this word for natives is the Greek word barbarous. It's a name for those who spoke their own native language rather than Greek. They were kind of not a part of Greek culture or the Greek language. So they just in generically referred to them as barbarians, basically, or natives. And that was the population on Malta. They had their own language. They really didn't participate in a lot of the Greek culture or the Greek uh, language itself. But what we see in, in this uh, passage is that they, in verse 2, the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. And because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. So basically, they have shipwrecked. They're still in the midst of this Uroquillo storm. Wind's blowing, the rain is pounding, it's cold out there. And the natives that live up in the surrounding hills must have somehow seen the ship out in the bay. They've seen the, sh- the shipwreck. They've seen all these survivors make their way to the shore. And they come and they show uh, extraordinary kindness. This is really a, an expression of God's common grace. And common grace is a phrase we use for God's mercy and blessings and goodness that He bestows in general on all people. Maybe not to the same degree, but it's His goodness towards all kinds of people. In distinction from His saving grace, whereby He actually saves their soul through faith in Jesus Christ. This is common grace. It's common to all kinds of people. And we are thankful for common grace. Common grace is something that uh, unbelievers can have, which even though they don't know the Lord, they're not forgiven of their sins. Nevertheless, they can be very civil. They can be law-abiding citizens. They can be loving and giving and kind to those in need. And this is what we see among these people. They're not saved. They're not Christians. And yet they can certainly show kindness towards their fellow man in need. Now again, this is something that we thank God for because if God didn't shower His common grace on mankind in general, we would all be out in the streets killing one another right now. Uh, That's just the nature of man's depravity. So what common grace does, it's like a muffler on your car. It filters out a lot of the toxins of our sin nature so that the air that comes out of your car won't kill you as quickly as if you know you didn't have the muffler or the catalytic converter on it. So this is what common grace does. And that's why unbelievers can be very moral people. Nice people. People that you'd want to have as neighbors. It doesn't mean they know the Lord. And they're still sinners and depraved on the inside. But God's common grace can soften the viciousness of our natural depravity. And that's what we see here. And then if you look down at verse 7, uh, in the neighborhood of that place were lands uh, belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed and entertained us courteously for three days. Now let me just kind of... Next slide, please. If you look at the island here, uh, in this particular area, this is where the shipwreck occurred right there. 
So they've all come to shore somewhere in this area. And uh, archaeology has discovered a villa right down in here. This is probably belonging to Publius. Uh, we're told that he was the leading man of the island in verse 7, which means that he was... Uh, Publius, by the way, is a Roman name, so he may very well have been the highest Roman official on the island. He was a, like a chief magistrate. And uh, we we actually see in some of the uh, archaeology around there that's been uncovered, uh, uh, this is a, a view of that little villa. You can kind of see the water in the background, so he kind of uh, had a villa up on the side of the hills. Uh, the next one is, uh, this is actually an olive press that was probably on his property, just showing some of the things that uh, the villa would have been engaged in. Next one, please. Uh, there we have actually an olive press, an ancient olive press, and you can kind of see how it worked. And the next picture is where probably Publius may very well have lived. It's on a hillside near all of this. And it's also kind of interesting on on uh, the island of Malta that there was a cave that tradition says that's where Paul lived for the three months that he was there. And they have it all set up according to tradition. This is where he lived and, and stayed for the, for the time that they're actually on, on the island of Malta. But what's interesting about this is that even the government or Publius who represented the Roman official there on the island even showed common grace to the survivors of the shipwreck. Again, in verse 7, it says that he welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. Now, I may not have entertained the whole uh, number of people that were on the ship, the 276 people that were on the ship, but certainly Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, uh, the Roman centurion who was there, the pilot of the ship, probably those guys were actually entertained by Publius. But again, it shows a measure of God's common grace through government. And we're always blessed and refreshed when, when government does good to their fellow man. I mean, that's what they're ordained to do in Romans 13, is to be a minister for good. Now, Publius, whether he did this out of his own uh, individual common grace kindness or whether he did it because he knew that there was a centurion that had been shipwrecked and if he was a Roman official of the island, then he certainly wants to take care of his fellow Roman centurion. So we don't know what the mix may have been, but certainly he showed them great kindness. And uh, and this is always a blessing when when government does that. Now the Roman government at this time was very pagan, very idolatrous, very evil in its own way. But nevertheless, they implemented law and order and religious freedom to a certain degree, which enabled the gospel to spread throughout the whole Roman Empire at this time. So there, even then, you see the common grace of God in government. They were still very idolatrous and did things they shouldn't have done. But nevertheless, the common grace of God enabled them to provide a stable society for the freedom of the gospel to be proclaimed. Now, that would eventually turn and change, we know, because the Roman government will eventually change colors and they'll begin to persecute the church. 
And, uh, and we know that that's going to begin to happen not too long after this time period. Nero is on the throne at this time. And Nero's not so bad right now, but Nero's going to take a horrible turn. And obviously the persecution is going to uh, result. Uh, Paul is probably going to be beheaded later on by Nero. So we can thank God for the common grace, the goodness that we can see uh, even in government. And I think, uh, next slide please. I think that's why the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy when he said that basically we need to pray for all men, including kings and those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. So we need to be praying for our government and pray that uh, we will have the religious liberty and freedom to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity without persecution or without abuse. And that's certainly something that all Christians uh, are encouraged to be praying. So we've talked a little bit about the common grace of the Maltese people and the extraordinary kindness that they showed, even though they're not Christians, uh, but they were still compassionate for those who were suffering. We saw it with Publius. So again, common grace is one of the great blessings that we all experience on a daily level. But there are limitations to common grace. Common grace is definitely a blessing in society. Uh, It can result in many temporal and physical blessings, but common grace alone will not get you into heaven. Common grace is a blessing. We all want to live in a moral and civil society. But no matter how moral you get, no matter how civil we become, common grace will not get you into heaven. And yet, that is part of the great deception of our own day and age and of religion in general. That most religions teach that salvation basically is by common grace. Now, what do I mean by that? That basically, if you're a good person, if you're moral, if you treat your neighbor kindly, then when you die, you're going to go to heaven. That's a view of salvation by common grace. And sadly, uh, most religions, except for Christianity, and this has even infected Christianity to agree, but most people think that, you know, as long as you're not guilty of great big sins, you're basically a good person. You're a good moral person. You have common grace in your life. You think you're a good person, and that's going to qualify you to go to heaven. Sadly, even within the church, even within America, the Christian Christian church has veered in this direction. Uh, there's a survey, a poll, that was just recently taken, a year ago, January in the year 2020, by the Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center. And they said from their survey that 70% of evangelical churches. Now, when you compartmentalize Christians, evangelical is the group that is supposed to be the most committed to the Bible. They believe the inspiration of the Bible. They believe in the importance of evangelism. They believe in salvation through faith in Christ. 
But 70% of the people polled in evangelical churches said that people are basically good. Not sinners, but we are basically good. That's in the most religious category of Christians in America. That people are basically good. Now, it gets worse as you broaden the scope. If you move out into the mainline Protestant churches, it's 75% of people believe that people are basically good. Go to the Roman Catholic Church, it's 77% of them say that man is basically good. Now, George Barna, who is the um, director of this particular research center, said that from, quote, from a biblical perspective, the problem is that we have a sin nature, pure and simple. We can deny it, but it still exists. And that's a problem. We praise God for common grace. Thankful that there's a lot of common grace in our own culture. But common grace can never save some people, and yet most people think that they're going to be saved because they're basically good moral people. And they don't realize that they are sinful. Most people's theology can be distilled in the idea that, you know, I'm really not all that bad and God really isn't all that mad. But that's a deceptive gospel. And yet it's really the gospel that pervades in America. And that's the problem. We deny that we have sin. Well, I'm a good person. God has given them a certain amount of common grace. And they're moral. And they have certain standards. Well, I'm a good person. So surely when I die, I'll go to heaven. No, no. We're all sinners. There's no amount of goodness that we could do to ever merit salvation for ourselves. It's not popular to talk about sin. But it's certainly important to talk about sin because it's a part of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, in his great exposition of the Gospel in the book of Romans, in Romans 3, was very adamant that there is none righteous. Not even one. So even though men have a level of common grace and they're basically good and moral in man's eyes, they're not out murdering or committing adultery or stealing or all those kinds of things. They deceive themselves if they think that they're really good in God's eyes. No, we're not good. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. There is none who does good. Now, in man's eyes, yeah, common grace, not in God's eyes. There's not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why Paul has emphasized so often, the rest of the Bible emphasized you can't be saved by your common grace goodness. Paul says in Galatians 2 that man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. See, Christ came to die on the cross to save sinners through His atoning blood. He freely sacrificed Himself. He who committed no sin. Who was truly righteous and good because He was God in human flesh. And He voluntarily went to the cross and 
and willingly took our sins upon Him and suffered the wrath and penalty of God for sinners just like us. So that whoever believes and repents and turns from their sin and puts their faith totally in Jesus Christ can be forgiven of their sins. But see, all of that begins with a recognition that I'm not good. I'm not a righteous person. I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. So even though we thank God for common grace, it's a blessing. Common grace will never save anybody. Because I don't care how good you think you are or how righteous you think you are, that's totally unacceptable before God. Because His standard is perfection. And we are flawed. With all the good things we think we do, we've also committed all kinds of sin. The greatest of which is we have not loved God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Has, has anyone ever done that? No one but Christ. We have all sinned. Common grace can produce a measure of goodness like it did with the Maltese people, with Publius. A goodness imbued in the eyes of men is, is good, but it's all defective in the eyes of God. We are unable to invent, produce, or manufacture a righteousness that is acceptable to God because again, His standards, it must be absolutely 100% perfect. And we have all fallen short. To be saved, we need a righteousness. But it's a righteousness that we can't produce. So we're sunk. We're without hope. If I'm looking to myself to try to be good enough to earn to heaven, I'm shipwrecked. I can't do it. And I can't, should not deceive myself thinking that I can based upon the common grace that God has given me. So what do we need? What's the answer? Well, we need a righteousness that only God can give us. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 3, he wanted to be found in Him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's a God-given righteousness. So we again, we thank God for common grace, but let no one think that just because they're basically a good person, that that's going to get them into heaven. It will not. We need Christ, His forgiveness, His righteousness. And, only, and, and the only way you can get it is to come to Him in turning from our sin and believing in Him alone for salvation. Well, from there we pick it up in verse 3. Another interesting incident happens. Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire. And a viper came out and because of the heat and it fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man was a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, snake handlers, beware. Do not try this at home. And it's kind of interesting that you know back in a few generations ago, or maybe, I don't know if there's still any of them left, 
there, there is this group of people that were snake handlers and they thought that if they could go out and boldly pick up a snake, and it was actually a test of their faith to pick up a snake and, and trust knowing that if they were bitten, they, they wouldn't die from it. And they look at Paul here as an example and they get it actually from Mark 16 where in the Great Commission, Jesus says you'll go out and you'll pick up serpents and if you drink deadly poison, they'll not hurt them. And they connect the dots and they think that they should be able to do that today as a test of their faith. Well, again, don't, don't do that at home. It's not biblical. You're foolish if you try to do it. But it's amazing what happened to Paul. So he's a servant. He's just been washed up on shore. He's cold. He's wet. The natives have lit a fire. So he's out there picking up sticks to add to the fire. He wasn't just sitting back and letting other people do it. He was engaged. And when he picked up a bundle of snakes and put it close to the fire, a viper came out and bit him. And it hung on. Now, if you know anything about poisonous snakes, when they bite, usually it's just a, it's, it's, you know, it's lightning fast. They bite you and they're, they're back off. But if they bite and they hang on, guess what they're going to do? They're just pumping in more and more venom into you. They're hanging on. Now, I think cobras do that sometimes. They'll bite and they'll hang on. And when they're hanging on, they're just continually injecting their venom into you. So, so the natives see this. They see this man who's now a snake bit, and that snake is hanging on there, and they recognize that's a poisonous viper. So they look at all this, and based on their faulty worldview, they determine that, well, this guy must be a great murderer. And he's not going to survive because justice, the name of one of their god, gods, a god of justice and revenge, has taken him out. Given him his, his just dues. But see, that, that uh, analysis, that interpretation, was based upon their worldview, which was faulty. Okay? So what is a worldview? Just real quickly. Well, worldview is a set of beliefs or assumptions and values that give a framework for interpreting or responding to the world in which we live. Everybody has a worldview. If you're here this morning, you have a worldview. You have a basic set of beliefs, assumptions, and values that you use to interpret everything that goes on in your life and in the world in which we live. Everyone has that framework. Now, when our thinking is impacted too much by the world, then our worldview gets skewed. And for every believer, obviously, we should seek to get our worldview from the Word of God, right? From the Bible. Uh, when our worldview comes more from just the, the time in which we live, then we'll have a tendency to misinterpret things in life. Like, like the two boys in a museum. They're walking down one of the exhibit rooms and they see a mummy in a case and on the outside of the glass was a plaque that that said 1286 BC and one of the boys turned to the other and said I wonder what that means and the other one said well maybe it's the license number of the car that hit him and he totally misinterpreted it because his worldview was skewed 
It was not a proper worldview. So he brought his own beliefs, his own life experiences, and misinterpreted the information that he saw. By the way, that's why there's such a big difference between uh, the belief in evolution and the belief in creation. It's the same data, same facts, same information, but people interpret it from different worldviews. One worldview believes in God, the other worldview does not, and so they end up with polar opposite convictions looking at exactly the same data. So worldview is extremely important. That's basic set of beliefs and assumptions and values. So when they look at Paul from their worldview, believing in the pagan gods as they did, and they looked at what happened to Paul, then they automatically assume this guy must be a murderer. And justice has punished Paul. So that's that's their misinterpretation based upon a faulty worldview. Faulty religious worldview. And then lo and behold, we read that uh, nothing happened. Verse 5, He shook the creature off into the fire, suffered no harm. Verse 6, But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. And after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and now they began to call him a god. So again, faulty worldview based upon the religious paganism of their day where they believe in all these different gods. So, well, if he can be bit by a poisonous snake and not die, then he's not a murderer, so now he's a god. And so it's just a total flip-flop. You know, that happened to Paul also in Acts 14. A similar situation when they accuse him of being you know, a sinner and then they worship him as a god because of maybe a, some, a miracle that he did. But the worldview notion is something that has misled them to misinterpret twice the circumstances of Paul being bitten uh, by the snake. Now this does raise the question, why was Paul bitten by that viper? And it raises a question really of how do we interpret when those kinds of things happen to us, maybe not a literal snake bite, but sometimes we feel like we get snake bitten by just the circumstances of life. How do we interpret it? Well, your worldview will give guidance. And for just a couple of minutes, I want to quickly just address that issue, looking at it from a biblical worldview perspective. What does the Bible say when people get bitten by the circumstances of life. When you go through your afflictions or your sufferings or things come out of the blue and just seem to bite you and, and, and want to do you harm. Of course, Paul was healed from it by the grace of God. But how do we interpret these kinds of worldview situations with our own trials? They said he was a murderer then concluded he was a god. What does the Bible say? Well, I think when trials come into our life, we certainly should begin by at least evaluating if it was due to sin. It's not always due to sin, obviously. But it's a good place to start. God does discipline us as His children. And I think it's probably wise and prudent whenever some disaster or calamity comes into my life to stop and say, 
Lord, is this discipline for something that I've done? We know that that's biblical because He does discipline the children that He loves. And we we're told that in Hebrews 12. Uh, backing up, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. So there are times in our life when we may do something that's not pleasing to God or we may sin against the Lord or break a commandment or whatever it may be. And our loving Heavenly Father may choose to discipline us. So I think that's probably a good place to begin. Uh, But of course, whenever God does that, He always does it for our good. As Hebrews 12 goes on to say, that He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. These trials and afflictions are sorrowful. They're not fun times to go through when you get bitten. Uh, But yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. In my own personal opinion, if God is going to discipline you or me for sin, He's going to make it known what that sin is. If He doesn't, then I'm in a deep quandary. Because I'm I'm looking at my life and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, i got so many sins, for which one is it that You're disciplining me for? So I think if it's a a discipline for sin, the Lord's going to communicate that so that we can learn from it and repent from it. Um, But I think it's a good place to start nevertheless. Okay, next you can look at Job's friends, just for looking at what the Bible says of how we should interpret our sufferings, and our afflictions, our snake bites, if you will. And Job's friends blamed his suffering, of course, on Job's own personal sin, but they did that wrongly. They're also operating from a faulty worldview. So they're inter- misinterpreting why Job is suffering. Now we're told in Job 1.1 that he's a blameless, upright, God-fearing man turning away from evil. So all the things that happened to Job, the loss of all of his wealth, the loss of all of his health was not due to his sin. There are other reasons we know from the book of Job. In fact, the, the real reason had nothing to do with Job and sin, but rather it was to teach the angelic realm that Job's faith in God was not a mercenary faith. That God was worshipped by Job because of who God is. And that Job wasn't worshipping God just because God blessed him. And all the demonic realms say, yeah, well just touch him and he'll curse you to your face. And so God says, well let's do a test. So he initiated the whole thing. He governed it. He controlled it. And you know the book of Job. But it was not because of his sin. But it was there merely to teach angels the proper nature of true faith. That true faith is not just I I love God and worship Him because He's good to me. In terms of blessing my business or blessing me with health. Because if, if if you lose all that, then you lose your faith if, if your faith is rooted in your temporal blessings. Now the demons thought that's the nature of faith. Hey, you Christians, eh, it's all you just because God's blessed you. You take away the blessings, you'll turn away from God so quick. 
And God said, no, that's not the nature of the gift that I give. So He gave Job, obviously, a, a, a faith and a grace to persevere through those intense trials. Wouldn't it be something if some of your ordeals and difficulties that you go through is that God is teaching the demons that your faith is real and genuine? And even though we may struggle and we may waffle, nevertheless, we persevere by the grace of God. Who knows? But that was the case with Job. It had nothing to do with his sin whatsoever. Well, how about in John 9? The man born blind was also accused wrongly of suffering due to his sin. So remember, the disciples came up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? So here's a guy born blind, and obviously it's due to sin. Somebody sinned. Was it his parents that sinned, or was it him who sinned to be born blind? I guess he must have, been, must have sinned in the womb or something. But Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, he was born blind so that eventually Christ would heal him for the glory of God. Had nothing to do with this sin. Sometimes your afflictions, your trials, are given to you, and you may have to endure them for many, many ages or, or years or decades. But eventually, God rescues you out of that. And through that, God gets glory. And sometimes our sufferings and our afflictions are designed to glorify God once. He brings us through it or out of it. And that was true with this particular man. Another reason from a biblical worldview to explain why sometimes we get bitten, it's not because of sin, but it's because of just God's grace and proving godly character. We read this in Romans 5 earlier. Listen again, pay, pay close attention to the tribulations here. We exult in our tribulations. We rejoice in our tribulations. Why? Tribulations bring about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And in the contest, it's the hope of the glory of God. So we exult in our trials and tribulations because God oftentimes uses those to build perseverance and godly Christian character in our life. So when you look at your trials and you look at the things in your life that are that uh, you don't like, maybe God's using them to test you, to persevere through it, to keep trusting God, looking to God, knowing He's in control, praying for His mercy and grace, and know that through that, He is exercising your faith to produce endurance, proven character, and hope ultimately of the glory of God. That ultimately we'll leave this life and we'll be in the presence of God. And sometimes that's the reason for our trials and tribulations. Of course, there's also just the general suffering that comes with living in a fallen world. Job says man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And some of our afflictions and trials and snake bites and shipwrecks and all the things that Paul had to go through are just because we live in a, a sin-cursed world 
among sinners who share a sin nature and bad things just happen. Hurricanes occur. Tornadoes occur. We live in a world that's impacted by sin in many different ways. Diseases. COVID viruses. Death thrives. Where evil men do evil things. And sometimes we're, we're caught up in the crosshairs. It's not necessarily from our sin. It's just because we live in a sinful world. And sometimes that may explain some of the hardships that we have to go through. So, come back to my original question. Why did Paul, why was he bitten? Why did he have to go through the shipwreck? Why was he in the height of his ministry falsely accused and arrested and beaten and put in jail? He's been in jail for two years on this this shipwreck situation two weeks in the storm. Why did he have to go through all that? Well, we don't know, of course. But ultimately, the viper bite, the shipwreck, everything that he experienced was probably not due to his own sin. He was a godly man. I doubt it was due to his previous sins before he was converted. I think it was ultimately for the glory of God to build character in his life, to show the grace of perseverance. And in this particular sense, since he was healed from this snake bite, it was to elevate his ministry for the preaching of the Gospel of Christ. So Paul ultimately was healed for the glory of God. He was bitten for the glory of God. He was healed for the glory of God. It was all a part of God's plan. Ultimately, I think, to elevate him in the eyes of the people so they would listen and pay attention to the Gospel when He preached it. Our afflictions are always an opportunity for spiritual growth for us too. And our afflictions are also an opportunity for us to be a witness for Christ. Look at your afflictions from that perspective. And I think uh, we we can learn from them. We can ask God, Lord, what do I need to learn from this trial? How can I honor You in the midst of this? Because everything has a purpose. Well, real quick in wrapping this up in verses 8-10, through we have the supernatural grace for Paul and the healing from the viper bite. And now we have the supernatural grace for the Maltese people. So in verse 8, Paul heals the father of Publius who had this reoccurring fever and dysentery. By the way, that's called Malta fever. Uh, in 1887, they traced it back to Maltese goat milk. There was some kind of a microorganism that you would get and you could be sick for months with this stuff. Uh, reoccurring fevers, uh, dysentery, and uh, there was no medicines back then, obviously. And Publius's father was smitten with this. But Paul comes and prays for him, puts hands on him, heals him. Obviously, the prayer is a God healed his father, Publius's father. And then after that, in verse 9, all the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came to Paul and they were being healed as well. So you have an, uh, just a, an, an outflow of supernatural grace again. In Paul's healing, and then also in Publius's father, and then in all these other people. You know, and it's interesting to me in the timing of all this. That if you go back in the book of Acts, the last time Paul did a miracle, 
that's at least recorded in, in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 20 when he was in Troas. That was probably two and a half years earlier. Now, did Paul do any more healings during that time period? I don't know. The Bible doesn't indicate what, what that suggests to me possibly. And I think this is true anyway, is that God controls the spiritual gifts that He gives to His people. In other words, Paul just couldn't automatically heal someone anywhere and any place and any time that he wanted to. That was all governed by the Spirit of God. It's interesting, later on in his life, when the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, he said, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. He couldn't heal him. He left him there sick. But here on the island, I think the Lord wanted to raise up a church and preach the Gospel. And He he, uh, revived this gift of healing that Paul had. And we see it uh, abundantly manifested on the island. And I think again, God's design to that was to authenticate Paul in His Gospel preaching. So we see Christ as a great physician who can heal both the body and the soul. So in wrapping this up, I think we can uh, thank God for common grace. Uh, We can thank God for the blessings uh, in our own world today that we still have. But to recognize that common grace can never save anybody. And that as we're sharing Christ with people, understand the majority of people, even in evangelical churches, their default thinking is, I'm a good person and I'm going to go to heaven because I'm good. This is in Bible-believing evangelical churches. Supposedly, the majority think they're going to be saved by common grace goodness. And our responsibility is to discern that and to faithfully share the Gospel with them that we are all sinners and deserve the wrath of God and only Jesus Christ can save. So one of the things we see from that is a blessing of common grace, but also wanted to point out the inferiority of common grace. That salvation is based on supernatural grace, not common grace. And that's the Gospel and the privilege that we have to preach to other people. We've also seen in this passage the importance of a biblical worldview to help us to understand and respond to the world around us. Their faulty worldview led them to wrong conclusions about Paul both in being a murderer or in being a god. So we need to bring our thinking in line with Scripture. We want a biblical worldview. One of the classes I teach in our church's co-op is a biblical worldview class. And it's very, very important uh, that we take every area of life and bring it under the authority of of, uh, the Word of God. So again, a biblical worldview was very important in interpreting the trials that Paul went through. And it's important for you in interpreting your afflictions as well. But we can also finally thank God for supernatural grace, the healing that occurred. Because ultimately, God's supernatural grace can heal the body. But most importantly, He can also heal the soul. Only God's supernatural grace can heal the soul. You see, we may be healthy on the outside, but on the inside, we're not healthy. The soul of man is sick with sin and spiritually dead and dying, if you can combine the two metaphors. 
like sinful Israel in Isaiah chapter 1. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound or healthy within it. This is our condition by nature. We are infected with, with a sinful wound in our soul. And we're bloated with sin, which is untreated. And we're helpless to heal ourselves. And being good through common grace cannot remove our sins. We must confess them and turn to Jesus Christ who alone can save us. And then our souls can be healed from the disease of sin that we're all snake-bitten with. With the venom of sin just rushing through our veins, we cannot heal ourselves. Only the great physician can reach out His hand through the blood of Jesus Christ and heal the soul. And that's our Gospel. And that's what we praise God for the ministry of the Apostle Paul on the island of Malta. Not only did he heal the body through there for three months, I'm sure he preached. And God, through His grace, healed the souls of many as well. Well, may God use us as bearers of that supernatural grace and salvation and the Spirit of God to bear witness for our Savior in the world in which we live as well. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for the ministry of the Apostle Paul on the island of Malta. We thank You for some of the practical lessons that we can glean from this, Lord, as we look at our own lives and see how easy it is for us to misunderstand and not respond properly to things taking place in our own world. We need Your grace and guidance for that. And we need Your help to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and to develop a biblical worldview. Lord, we thank You for the common grace in our world, Lord. Uh, What a greater chaos it would be without that. But Lord, we realize that the greater need today is for sinners to be saved. And that requires supernatural grace. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who maybe has just kind of embraced the idea that they think they're going to go to heaven because they're not a murderer, they're not a adulterer, Lord, may You show them the true nature of their own heart and soul. And may the Spirit of God show them that they are sinners too and there's nothing they can do to scrub away the sin from our heart. That only forgiveness can come through faith in Jesus Christ and His shed blood on Calvary's cross and His resurrection on the third day. Lord, grant them the supernatural grace of repentance and faith that they may come to know the Savior as well. Thank You for the heart of Paul, his love for Christ, his desire to lift him high. And may that heart live in us as well, we pray. For the glory of our great Savior and our God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.